a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. This is one of those places where wrong think is strongly encouraged, though not required. And group think is, well, it's a lot harder to engage in because I'm doing everything in my power to encourage you to think as clearly and independently as you can about the world around us and the information that you're taking in. And then I'm going to take it one step further and encourage you to don't just sit there and, you know, feel bad about it or feel great about it, whatever your reaction is, but to actually consider what you can do to improve the world in a way that is unique to you and you alone. I know it sounds like a lofty thing to do, but I can tell you this, life is a whole lot better when you're engaged that way rather than simply shouting bumper sticker slogans back and forth at other people who are shouting them at you. And I'm going to warn you right up front today, I'm going to cover some territory. I'll put it this way. If you have ever listened to this show and found yourself going, whoa, Brian, that's a bit much. I don't know if I want to go there. I can promise you, you are going to be saying that at some point in today's show. And I'm not doing that to be sensational. I'm just telling you there's some pretty crazy stuff going on. We're going to take a really in-depth look at some of those aspects. Now, we'll also have some humor. We'll also have some uh, inspirational thoughts as well. But holy cow, some of the stuff that is taking place right under our noses. I mean, we are living through truly historic times. On the one hand, I almost feel honored to be a part of it. On the other hand, it uh, it's very intimidating. This is, this is some pretty intense, forth-turning stuff that you and I are going through right now. And we still haven't hit the high point. We still haven't hit the climax of where this forth-turning is going. So, shall we dive right in? One of the things I want to put out there, since I'm, gonna, I'm committed to you know, pushing the envelope a bit today, I want to put out that uh, phrase, the Great Reset. Now, I know that there are those out there, Brian, that's just a conspiracy that's you know, keeping people distracted. Yeah, I'm not so sure. I, let me put it this way. I'm sure there are people out there who are still more or less in a trance and are manipulated by much of the mass media into thinking, that, well, you know, there's some things that are a little bit odd, but there's nothing that's really, you know, great reset type odd. I want to share an article with you from Burson Phillip. This is from the Mises Institute, Mises.org. The Great Reset in Action, Ending Freedom of the Press, Speech, and Expression. And as I share this with you, I want you to just ask yourself, is it possible? Are these things really happening? Because if the answer is yes, then we've got a situation on our hands, my friend. Here's what uh, Bearson Flip says. Governments, corporations, and elites have always been fearful of the power of a free press because it's capable of exposing their lies and destroying their carefully crafted images and undermining their authority. So in recent years, alternative journalism has been growing and more people are relying on social media platforms as sources of news and information. Now, in response, the corporate state, digital conglomerates, and the mainstream media have been increasingly supportive of silencing and censoring alternative media outlets and the voices that challenge the official narrative on most issues. Okay, so far so good? That, uh, that definitely rings true to me. 
Now, at the recent World Economic Forum meeting in Davos, Switzerland, Australian safety, e-safety commissioner Julie Inman Grant stated that freedom of speech is not the same thing as a free-for-all and that we're going to need a recalibration of a whole range of human rights that are playing out online from freedom of speech to be free from online violence. Meanwhile, the Canadian government is seeking to restrict independent media and the freedom of expression with the implementation of Bill C-11, which would allow it to regulate all online audiovisual programs, platforms rather, on the Internet. And that includes content on Spotify, TikTok, YouTube, and podcast clients. Wow. Now, similarly, the U.K. is seeking to introduce an online safety bill. The U.S. has paused its establishment of a disinformation governance board following backlash, and the European Union approved its own Digital Services Act. The point is, all of these aim to limit the freedom of speech. So, just a conspiracy? Well, that's quite a, quite a bit of action on the part of governments if, if this is just a conspiracy. Attempts by elites and politicians to silence dissenters and critical thinkers, it's nothing new. In fact, history is full of examples of the persecution of men of science, the burning of scientific books, and the systematic eradication of the intelligentsia of the subjected people. However, these current efforts to curtail freedom of speech and press by supposedly liberal governments are still somewhat ironic, given that even the most intolerant of churches, the Roman Catholic Church, even at the canonization of a saint, admits and listens, listens pain, patiently rather, to a devil's advocate. So the holiest of men, it appears, cannot be admitted to posthumous honors until all that the devil could say against him is known and weighed. Now, the corporate state, digital conglomerates, and the mainstream media want to ensure that they have the exclusive authority to dictate people's opinions, wants, and choices through their sophisticated propaganda techniques. Now, to do so, they've even resorted to transforming falsehoods into truth. In fact, the word truth has already had its original meaning altered, as those who speak the truth on certain subjects are now regularly accused of spreading hate speech, misinformation, or disinformation. So presently, truth is no longer something to be found, with the individual conscience as the sole arbiter of whether in any particular instance the evidence or standing of those proclaim, pro, proclaiming it rather warrants a belief. Instead, it becomes something to be laid down by authority, something which has to be believed in the interest of the unity of the organized effort, and which may have to be altered as the exigencies of this organized effort require it. That's beautifully put. Now here the author says, however, modifying the definition of truth comes with the potential for great peril, as truth-seeking often contributes to human progress in that it leads to discoveries that ultimately benefit society at large. It should be noted that truth is by no means the only word whose meaning has been changed recently in order for it to serve as an instrument of propaganda. Other words would include freedom, justice, law, right, equality, diversity, woman, pandemic, vaccine, etc. Now this is highly concerning because such attempts at the perversion of language, the change, the change of the meaning of words by which the ideals of the ruling class are expressed is a consistent feature of totalitarian regimes. As a number of liberal democratic governments increasingly move toward totalitarianism, they want people to forget that there is a, the greatest difference between, between presuming an opinion to be true 
because with every opportunity for contesting it, it has not been refuted and assuming its truth for the purpose of not permitting its refutation. See, according to them, public criticism or even expressions of doubt must be suppressed because they tend to weaken public support. In fact, they believe that all views and opinions that might cast doubt or create hesitation need to be restricted in all disciplines and on all platforms. This is because the disinterested search for truth cannot be allowed when the vindication of the official views becomes the sole sole object of the ruling class. In other words, the control of information is practiced and uniformity of views is enforced in all fields under totalitarian rule. So the suppression of freedom of the press or expression or speech and thought means that current and future generations will be deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. If wrong, they lose what is almost as as great a benefit, the clearer perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error. They're also at risk of becoming ignorant of the fact that the only way in which a person can know the whole of a subject is by hearing what can be said about it by persons of every variety of opinion and studying all modes in which it can be looked at by every character of mind. That is to say, current and future generations will be unaware that the steady habit of connecting or correcting rather and completing one's own opinion by collating it with those of others, so far from causing doubt and hesitation into carrying into, into practice, is the only stable foundation for a just reliance on it. Now, at present, he says, it's likely the masses don't regard freedom of speech, expression, and thought as being particularly important because the great majority are rarely capable of thinking independently. That on most questions, they accept views which they find ready-made, and they'll be equally content if born or coaxed into one set of beliefs or another. Nevertheless, no one should have the power and authority to select those to whom freedom of thought, enlightenment, and expression is to be reserved. Now, again, this is an article by Burson Phillip on the Mises.org website. We're going to come back to it here in just a couple of minutes, but I just, I just want to ask you, does it seem plausible? Does that seem like it could be going on? I mean, I understand people's reluctance to want to believe it because this would shake up your worldview in a big way, right? It would definitely indicate that, uh, hey, maybe things aren't so great. I just can't help but think of the meme of the dog sitting there with a cup of coffee You know, as the house is burning down around him and said, this is fine. Everything's fine. How much longer can you keep telling yourself that and that the people who are pointing things out like, hey, the house is on fire are the crazy ones? This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. A quick shout out here to Dixie Chiropractic. That would be Dr. Ward Wagner. By the way, I've got a link in my show notes under my sponsor section. You can just click on DixieChiro.com. That's that's the link I provide for you. And check them out for yourself. Now, for my listeners in Southern Utah, this is terrific news. If you or someone you know is is suffering from pain, and I'm talking the kind of pain that uh, that is long-lasting or something chronic that you have to deal with over a long period of time, you got a bulging disc in your back or something, or maybe you have neuropathy, or perhaps you've been in a car accident recently and suffered some injuries, talk to Dr. Ward Wagner at DixieChiro.com. You can find relief. You can find help. There are things available to you you may not have even considered. 
That's DixieCairo.com. And when you talk to his office, please let them know that you're talking to them because you heard about it on this program. So I'm sharing this article from Burson Phillip. This is on Mises.org, The Great Reset in Action, Ending Freedom of Press, Speech, and Opinion, or and Expression, rather. It's crazy how many people support the idea that, well, there are some ideas out there that are just too dangerous for you and I to have free access to. And yet uh, the idea that, wow, we shouldn't allow competing viewpoints to just come up in the marketplace of ideas and, and compete with one another. Let the best uh, win out. Let the best rise to the top. Oh, no, no, we can't even let you consider those things. It might undermine your faith, which to me is bureaucrats speak for, you might recognize what we're doing to you and not like it, or suddenly realize, hey, I don't want to go along with that after all. That's probably the more likely thing that they're saying. The article goes on to say, in fact, John Stuart Mill went so far as to claim if all mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be justified in silencing mankind. Now, Mill further added that uh, silencing expression of an opinion is essentially an act of robbing the human race which applies to both current and future generations. So even though the suppressors can deny the truth to the people at a particular point in time, history shows that every age, having held many opinions which subsequent ages have deemed not only false but absurd, and it is as certain that, ma- as, that many opinions, now general, will be rejected by future ages, as it is that, once, that many, once general, are rejected by the present. So if current efforts to suppress freedom of press, speech, expression, and thought succeed, then the search for truth will eventually be abandoned, and totalitarian authorities will decide what doctrines ought to be taught and published. There will be no limits on who can be silenced, as the control of opinions will be extended to all people in all fields. Did you catch that? You're not safe, even if you're hiding in the crowd. So accordingly, authoritarian policymakers need to be reminded of the importance of the crucial importance of freedom of speech, expression, and thought, which the U.S. Supreme Court recognized in the 1957 case Sweezy v. New Hampshire, when it ruled, quote, to impose any straight jacket upon the intellectual leaders in our colleges and universities would imperil the future of our nation. No field of education is so thoroughly comprehended by man that new discoveries cannot yet be made. Teachers and students must always remain free to inquire, to study, and to evaluate, to gain new maturity and understanding. Otherwise, our civilization will stagnate and die. Our form of government is built on the premise that every citizen shall have the right to engage in political expression and association. This right was enshrined in the First Amendment in the Bill of Rights. Exercise of those basic freedoms in America has traditionally been through the media of political associations. History has amply proved the virtue of political activity by minority dissident groups who innumerable times have been in the vanguard of democratic thought and whose programs were ultimately accepted. Mere unorthodoxy or dissent from prevailing mores is not to be condemned. The Supreme Court said the absence of such voices would be a symptom of a grave illness in our society. So this is the end of the article, but again, this is from Burson Phillip from the Mises Institute, 
This is one of the reasons why I think it's so important. Not only that you speak the truth, but that you'd be willing to seek the truth and defend even those points of view that you, not not necessarily the the point of view itself, but those who speak truths or who speak opinions that you don't agree with. If you kind of cheer either openly or even silently to yourself when you see them getting, you know, throttled by the algorithms on social media or officially, you know, denounced and smeared as someone nobody should listen to and, and being silenced, that's not a that's not becoming of a person who understands freedom. And just because you're defending someone's right to speak freely, something that you disagree with doesn't mean you agree with them. It just means you recognize their ideas deserve the same protection as your ideas do. This is how we know when someone is serious about freedom. Okay, shifting gears. Let's talk about uh, the Constitution. Is it absolute? Mike Meharry from the Tenth Amendment Center has a wonderful essay on this as on this subject, and he he uses a great current event to illustrate his point, arguing that high caliber weapons should be federally banned. President Joe Biden claimed. Remember, the Constitution was never absolute. Now, Mike Meharry says, Biden was merely advancing the popular notion of a living, breathing Constitution. And according to proponents of this theory, the founders couldn't have imagined all the changes that would happen over time, such as the development of high-powered, semi-automatic weapons. Therefore, the Constitution must evolve and change with the times. Now, Mike Meharry says, look, the founders were smart people. I'm certain they imagined that technology and society would evolve over time. But what the founders couldn't have imagined is a scenario where government could change the limits on its own power and authority on a whim. That said, he says, Biden wasn't entirely wrong. The Constitution wasn't intended to be absolute. The founders did, in fact, recognize that changes would be necessary as times changed. That's why they included the amendment process. Now, we can change the prosecution, uh, the prosecution, the Constitution. Sorry, that was a weird Freudian slip. But it requires an act of the people of the states. The president can't do it. Congress can't do it. Congress can propose amendments or state conventions can propose them. But those amendments have to be ratified by the people in three quarters of the states. As Robert Livingston put it during the New York ratifying convention, all power is derived from the people. Now, this wasn't what Biden had in mind. He wants to change the Constitution by government edict. No relevant figure in the founding generation would have accepted this constitutional theory. In fact, the British colonists fought the revolution to extricate themselves from a political system based on a living, breathing Constitution. In the British system, the government was sovereign, not the people. The government itself defined its own powers and could expand them of its own accord. This is precisely the kind of government Joe Biden and other proponents of the living, breathing Constitution constitution rather yearned for. But as James Madison argued, there can be no security for a consistent and stable government if the people in power can willy-nilly change the Constitution to suit their political agenda. So the Constitution was grounded in contract law, and you can't have a living, breathing contract. Context, contractual provisions, rather, have a fixed meaning. When you sign on the dotted line, you expect those provisions to remain constant over time. When disagreements come up, both parties argue their position based on how they understood the contract when they signed it. Nobody would accept a banker saying, well, I know the mortgage meant so-and-so, but now it means something different. It's a living, breathing mortgage. That's absurd. And he says a living, breathing constitution is no less absurd. 
The entire point of a written constitution was to limit government power. You can't limit government power when the government officials can unilaterally decide the extent of their own powers and then expand those powers when they see fit. So ultimately, government doesn't make the rules for the people. The people make the rules for the government. Now, Biden would argue the amendment process is too difficult, but that's a feature of the constitutional system, not a flaw. It was supposed to be difficult for the federal government to expand its power and authority. There has to be broad consensus among the people of the states. And the rule of law itself requires consistency. Otherwise, government becomes arbitrary. Again, this is an article from Mike Meharry from the 10th Amendment Center. I've got a link in the show notes. Check it out. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. As you may know, SewingandQuiltingCenter.com is one of my prime sponsors of, of this program. I would just like to encourage you to go do some business with them. Someone you know loves to sew. Someone has real talent at it. And I'm just going to suggest that maybe they deserve the tools to really do what to, will just unleash their abilities. Sewing and Quilting Center can help you with that. They're located in St. George. Their physical store is at 779 South Bluff Street. But you can go to their website, learn a lot about them and what they have to offer. Not just great sewing machines and long-arm quilters and embroidery embroidery machines. I mean, we're talking entry level to the sky's the limits. But they also have the supplies that you need, the service that machines require, whether you bought your machine from them or not. And if you do buy a machine from them, They'll teach you how to use it. They offer free classes on how to how to use your long-arm quilter or how to use your sewing machine. That's sewingandquiltingcenter.com. Well, Independence Day approaches, and I've got a classic Barry Brownstein essay wondering, can Americans remember the virtue of independence and the corrosiveness of dependence? Just seemed like a really timely message. He says, if this 4th of July you reflect on the future of liberty, you will not be alone. In fact, he says, many Americans believe freedom is in decline. The Heritage Foundation's Index of Freedom confirms the decline. Now, keep in mind, by the way, this article was written back in 2018. Think of what's happened since then. Their latest 2018 data places the United States is only the 18th freest country in the world. I'm curious what it would be now, especially after, you know, COVID. Now, Barry Brownstein asks, are politicians to blame or do the politicians we elect merely reflect shifting societal attitudes toward freedom. Collectively, do we lack a freedom mindset? He says, in 1787, Ben Franklin was the oldest delegate to the Constitutional Convention. At the end of the last day of the convention, as Franklin left the hall, he was approached by a Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia, who asked, well, doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? Franklin famously responded, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Now, the you that Franklin was referring to was we the people. Now, in a letter Franklin wrote that same year, he gave insight as to what we would need to do to keep liberty. Quote, only a virtuous people are capable of freedom. As nations become corrupt and vicious, they have more need of masters. End quote. So most people think themselves virtuous. It's the other person who lacks virtues. Freedom, we may think, is declining because of them, not us. But Barry Brownstein says clearly we can't all be right. 
He says many virtues help maintain freedom, beginning with keeping our word and honoring our contracts. Deceit corrodes liberty. Essential to freedom is respect for the rights and properties of others. Our rights are only as strong as our respect for the rights of others. In his book, Wow, I'm an American, psychiatrist Peter Bregan argues that one of the most important virtues is taking responsibility for oneself and one's actions. Now, many say they love freedom, but professed love is not enough. Bregan writes, quote, Human nature contains more than love of freedom and devotion to responsibility. Human nature has darker corners. Fear lurks in one terrifying corner and helplessness in another. Because human nature is imperfect, some people can always be whipped into hating and envying freedom and its wonderful rewards. Wow, is that ever true. Now, Barry Brownstein says, Bregan imagines a world made up of two different people with very different and conflicting ideas about themselves and their basic rights. To one type of person, Bregan gives the name dependence, and to the other, independence. Describing dependence, he writes, Dependence doesn't think he can earn enough money to pay for what he needs and wants, such as food, shelter, medical care, education, and retirement. He wants the government to provide these things for him. Dependence thinks life is unfair and he wants government to make up for this unfairness. Dependence thinks he has a right to the good life. On the other hand, Bregan explains, Independence wants government to protect his freedom to take care of himself. Independence is up to the challenge of providing for himself and his loved ones. Bregan writes, He believes that he has a right to take responsibility for himself and to keep most of his earnings for himself and his family. Now, Barry Brownstein points out here, Bregan isn't advocating a dog-eat-dog world. He understands that individuals fall on hard times and advocates for voluntary charity and volunteer work. But Bregan argues that when we help those in need through government, most of our tax money is wasted or gobbled up by the government and its interest groups. Administrative costs are very high for government charity. Now, another corrosive effect of government charity is observed by Bregan, quote, People like dependents who do not like to take responsibility for themselves almost never give thanks for what they receive. People who wrangle favors out of other people, get handouts, and who live off others almost always feel entitled rather than grateful. Without lifting a hand to get what they want, they nonetheless feel as if they deserve everything they get and more. Indeed, they typically feel resentful towards the people who openly provide for them. End quote. So, is behaving like dependents consistent with the best in human beings? Bregan says no. He writes, I believe there's a core in every one of us that knows we should take responsibility and do what's right. When we act in accordance with our true or best nature, we feel good about ourselves. In other words, the default setting in human beings, our true nature is to be responsible. And when help is received, why does dependents feel resentment instead of gratitude? Well, Bregans explains, quote, irresponsible people know they are offending their own true or best nature. They sense they're taking advantage of others. They're sunk into an unethical condition in which they cannot feel comfortable with themselves. They feel ashamed of themselves. They resent responsible people whose lives remind them about their own spiritually sorry condition. End quote. Now, Barry Brownstein says Bregans indictment is powerful and far from politically correct. Government charity encourages an ungrateful, entitled mindset and a spiritually sorry condition. 
in this condition, we hide from our true nature. Now, he says, to be sure, it's not just individuals who assume the persona of dependence. It's all too common for firms to lobby government asking for subsidies and special protections from competition. Just as dependent individuals eschew responsibility and run from their true nature, firms seeking protection from government destroy the true nature of capitalism. Amen. Barry Brownstein ends by asking, would Franklin say, I told you so? Is declining virtue the cause of America's declining freedom? Have we met the enemy? And the enemy is us. Now, those are some pretty powerful questions. And, and you notice they're pointed. Like, ow, that's, stop jabbing me with that, that. That hurts. But they're true. And I think this is, this is one of the places where you and I underestimate our ability to have real influence and real impact on the world around us. And here's what I mean. I I know that people think, well, I'm just a single person in a world of 8 billion people. How can I possibly make a difference? But if you are one of those people who could be described as independence, willing to accept responsibility for your life, not so concerned with somebody else providing everything for you, but but, uh, more concerned with, I want to help the people around me, and I want government to stay out of the way, you know, to, to let me live and pursue happiness on my own terms. Now, I get it. Some people think, well, that's a very dangerous lifestyle, Brian. Every man is a law unto himself. And isn't it weird that their minds go immediately to, you know, well, we'll all be killing each other over parking spaces and we'll all be clubbing each other over the head and just taking whatever someone has that we like. I don't know about you. My mind doesn't work that way. If I see somebody driving a nice car, my reaction is they don't deserve that. They should be driving a crappy electric vehicle and... Well, okay, maybe maybe not that. Those Teslas are pretty nice. But I don't sit there and get consumed with the idea that they don't deserve that, and I wish someone would take it away. What, a, what an ugly, pathetic mindset to carry around. But you don't have to look very far to find people who believe not only is that uh, the, the way things ought to be, but they're very vigorous about speaking up about it. And I don't mean to, to you know bring COVID into everything, but... It seems like that quality really came out. Think of the people who were most vehement and and confrontational during the heyday of the COVID lockdowns. The ones who would confront people, and I mean happily confront people, threaten them with violence over not wearing a mask. Yeah. Those are the people with that dependence mindset. And, And if that sounds like, well, you're just demonizing them, all I'm saying is their mindset was not something that was consistent with a healthy individual living in a free society or a condition of personal freedom. So yeah, embrace it. Embrace freedom. Embrace responsibility. Be sure to stand up for other people's rights as well. And you're not going to change the government you know, overnight. I mean, it's not going to happen. But you will have influence on the people around you. And this is the point that I think most of us miss. That influence takes the form of things that we wouldn't expect. It's the little things. It's the small details that are often the the fulcrum that uh, leverages much greater things to happen in people's lives. You You might not even be aware of it, but that doesn't mean it's not happening. So I guess the lesson is be a good person. Trust that the consequences will play out as they should. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I'd like to mention lifesavingfood.com. invite you to click on the link I provide in my show notes. If you have any inkling of uh, taking care of yourself and those you care for in difficult times, let me just say lifesavingfood.com has pretty much anything you would need to make that a reality, to, to give you that peace of mind of knowing that you're prepared. And that's all I'm going to say about that. All right. So when it comes to pushing back against our woke overlords, you realize humor is a far more effective tool than anger. It's true. Now, look, I, I get tired of I get tired of being force fed woke ideology, whether it's being done, you know, kind of surreptitiously. Oh, look, you know, a TV show. Look at the new new storyline they've woven in here. How woke they are. The new the latest movies. I, I haven't seen the new Buzz Lightyear movie, but I guess it's 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 pretty woke. And apparently the box office receipts reflect this. People are just like, ah, you guys are sucking the fun out of every show because you got to preach wokeness to the to the masses. But rather than getting angry and going out there and oh, we're going to confront them head on and where are the pitchforks, where are the torches, humor is a much better way to deal with this sort of stuff. Actually got a great article here from John Miltimore. Why the anti-woke Beavis and Butthead clip is so hilarious and a real threat to white privilege theory. Now, I like Mike Judge, who is the creator of Beavis and Butthead. In fact, the the movie's kind of crude as far as uh, the movie Idiocracy, rather, which is a Mike Judge creation. It's crude in many senses, bad language, and, and some just really crass humor. But I don't know that I've seen a more accurate depiction of how a society devolves into real wholesale stupidity and it becomes normalized. Granted, it's set way in the future, like 500 years in the future, but boy, it lampoons a lot of the attitudes that are taking hold today. So John Miltimore says, in 1937, Boris Orman was working at a bakery in Russia when he shared a joke over tea with his colleague. This is how it goes. Stalin was out swimming, but he began to drown. A peasant who was passing by jumped in and pulled him safely to shore. According to British writer Jonathan Waterloo, Stalin asked the peasant what he would like as a reward. Realizing whom he had just saved, the peasant cried out, Nothing! Nothing! Just please don't tell anyone that I saved you. Now that's hardly the funniest joke ever told. But Orman was nevertheless one of countless Russians in the Soviet Union who got a 10-year stint in a labor camp for saying the joke. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, the great Russian writer who received the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1970, he got off a little bit easier. He received a mere eight-year sentence in the Gulag after Soviet authorities intercepted a letter he wrote to a friend in 1945 that made a crack about Stalin and criticized the Soviet system. Now, John Miltimore says one might be tempted to think the Soviets just had a really bad sense of humor, but there's a reason totalitarians and authoritarians seek to suppress jokes. And it's because history shows humor is a tool that empowers. In fact, it can fortify humans during dark and deadly times. And it can destroy an idea just as effectively as reason, though it's arguably most powerful when it's combined with reason. So uh, most, the most famous example might be Jonathan Swift's classic essay, A Modest Proposal, a masterpiece of satire that exposed the impoverished conditions of the time by saying poor Irish families could alleviate their condition by selling their excess children to rich people for food. 
Combining humor with pointed social commentary is a strategy employed by countless comedians, including uh, Eddie Murphy, George Carlin, Dave Chappelle, and Bill Burr. Which brings him to Mike Judge. John Miltimore says, Judge, a writer, animator, and director, is probably best known for Beavis and Butthead, an animated show that ran on TV in the 1990s and was turned into a feature film, Beavis and Butthead Do America, released in 1996. Since then, Beavis and Butthead have been mostly retired as Judge turned to other numerous to numerous other projects, including Office Space in 1999, Idiocracy in 2006, and the HBO hit show Silicon Valley. But Beavis and Butthead, a pair of metalhead morons who snicker at childish things and make crass observations about babes and scoring, are back. Earlier this month, a trailer of a new Beavis and Butthead movie dropped, announcing a June 23rd release date. And the plot is as bad as one would expect. Entertainment writer Christian Toto provides a synopsis. Our heroes stumble their way to space camp after destroying their school's science fair exhibit. The lad's penchant for sexual metaphors lands them a gig on a real space shuttle, and that's where the time-traveling plot kicks in. The boys sabotage the mission and enter a black hole. The snafu catapults them from the 1990s to 2022, but their space commander, Andrea Savage, is hot on their trail. She's now a governor with a political ambition to burn, and the boy's survival threatens her ascent. Now, John Miltimore says, look, this sounds silly, especially when the trailer shows Beavis and Butthead rehashing the same crude jokes and acts that they were 30 years before. I am Cornholio. I need TP for my bunghole. But that's precisely what's making it attractive to the audiences. One YouTube commenter said, this is one of the stupidest concepts for a Beavis and Butthead movie I can imagine. It's perfect. Now, John Miltmore says, not all the jokes are rehashed, however. A a subsequent clip dropped, and it explores a theme that Beavis and Butthead audiences in the 1990s never heard of, white privilege. The clip shows Beavis and Butthead in college, where they appear to walk into class late and are reprimanded by their professor. This is a classic case of white privilege, the instructor explains, and you both have it. Now, the duo have no idea what white privilege is, but several members of their class are kind enough to explain explain it to them. So, white privilege is when people, particularly men, automatically assume they can take whatever they want, one young woman explains. And they never have to worry about getting stopped by the police, another chimes in. And they have the inside track for any jobs. You get the idea. But the funniest part of that clip is that, unlike most people, Beavis and Butthead are not offended or ashamed when they hear this. They're excited. Whoa, Butthead says, and we have that? You sure do, the professor answers. Now, naturally, Beavis and Butthead decide to use this newly discovered power, but things don't go as planned. So, for those less familiar with the white privilege, it's just one aspect of a larger intellectual movement known as critical race theory. John Miltimore says writers at the Foundation for Economic Education and other prominent thinkers have explained at length why CRT is a dangerous and damaging philosophy, one that undermines individuality, fosters a victimhood mindset, and divides along racial lines instead of uniting us in a common humanity. He says making the philosophical case against CRT is important, but he says, I don't think I've ever seen a single scholarly article or lecture expose white privilege and its talking points as effectively as Mike Judge did in that two-minute Beavis and Butthead clip. By the way, there's a link to that video in the the story itself, so you should probably, you know, click on the link and, and check this out for yourself. Which brings John Miltimore back to the power of humor. He says satire and humor still have the power to destroy ideas, perhaps more than ever. 
And this is precisely why comedians like Dave Chappelle and sites like the Babylon Bee have become targets of the woke movement, which continues in its effort to suppress speech that violates its dogmas on race, gender, and class. Now, fortunately, today's commentators in America don't face prison sentences like Boris Orman and Alexander Solzhenitsyn did when they make jokes criticizing the ascendant orthodoxy. But they still face risks. Efforts to have Chappelle fired over his comedy show, The Closer, which included the trans community among its many targets, failed. The Babylon Bee has been suspended by Twitter for referring to Health and Human Services Secretary Rachel Levine, a biological man who identifies as a woman, as a man. But The Bee is still publishing. The actions against Chappelle, The Bee, and other creators have a clear chilling effect on expression, which is the entire point of cancel culture. Today's elites, like those of the 20th century, clearly recognize that humor has the power to undermine their ideas and power, which is why they work so hard to suppress it when it strays from the narrative. Miltimore says increasingly, however, creators refuse to be silenced. Beavis and Butthead taking on white privilege, it's just the latest example. With his two-minute takedown of CRT, Mike Judge didn't just expose the absurdity of white privilege talking points. He won a victory for free expression and struck a blow to cancel culture. I got to say, John is one of my favorite writers. The guy's a clear thinker. He's down to earth. I've actually, I've met him personally, uh, attending FeeCon a few years ago in Atlanta. Really a great guy. So I would strongly recommend if you're looking for a good source of information and a good solid take on the world around us, this is one of the voices that I would point you towards because I think John's very even-handed in how he writes and the way he he goes about uh, saying what he's saying. There's never viciousness. I never get a sense of spittle flinging as as he's describing things. He's he's solid, and I know it can be tough to find sources that are like that. So I don't know if I'm going to go see the the new Beavis and Butthead movie. I don't know if I would consider it a priority, but. Man, I am grateful for satirists like Mike Judge and even the really crass and irreverent ones like South Park. They do a marvelous job of lampooning the folks and the attitudes that really need to be lampooned. And if you say it with humor, it sometimes comes off as a lot less mean-spirited than people who are just going on the attack and, and, you know, angrily denouncing what they don't like. It also reminds us that laughter helps to make things bearable. This is The Brian Hyde Show. A trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Hey, if you're a first-time wrong thinker, go ahead and buckle your seatbelts. This hour is going to be a pretty wild ride. I'm going to cover some stuff that, let's just say it's, uh, it's pretty far down the rabbit hole, but you can handle it. Especially if you're a person who refuses to participate in their own mental enslavement. Because ultimately, that's what I'm encouraging, is think as critically and independently as you can. That means including don't believe what I say or what I share with you. Be sure to think for yourself and question it all. And do not feel like you have to go along with the people who are fitting you for some kind of a mental straitjacket. By the way, this program is brought to you by a lot of great sponsors, including the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage, LifesavingFood.com, 
MonticelloCollege.org, SewingAndQuiltingCenter.com, HSLAmmo.com, and Dixie Chiropractic. I've got links for all of them right there under the sponsor section in my show notes. Well, it's uh, not that self-government has been found, has been tried rather and found wanting. I'm paraphrasing something I think from G.K. Chesterton here. It's that it's been tried and found difficult because it requires responsibility and it requires effort. And let's face it, we want to outsource those kind of things because they, they require effort. No, let's let somebody else do it. Here, politician, I'm going to elect you. You take care of it. You keep me free. How's that working out for us, by the way? Not so good? All right. So I've got this great article here from Vincent McCaffrey, Won't Get Fooled Again. This is from AmericanGreatness.com. And he's, he's referring to the Who song, We Won't Get Fooled Again. And he says, let's explore the possibilities. This is America, after all. We have some experience with such explorations, even if most of us now sit for a living. Hey, okay, never mind. We'll tackle that another time. He says, let's start with the macro view. In order to compete in this world today, we need enormous corporations able to manage huge amounts of capital and command large workforces while influencing government priorities. Efficiency is gained by size and access to raw materials, as well as the access to markets that's gained by using government mandates. This view of economics has been taught since World War II, and there are millions of pages of text detailing the potentials, the patterns, and pitfalls. It's often labeled as capitalism, though, like China's use of markets, it's only that, in passing. And then he asks, what could go wrong? Vincent McCaffrey says, there are those who think this arrangement is just swell. Look how big and powerful we've become using these methods. Look on our works, ye mighty, and despair. Now, this view, he says, is usually promoted by individuals at the upper levels of the food chain, political insiders, and members of established families with a sufficient wealth to see them through the ups and downs of an economy based on the myriad uses of power. It's the way the world works, so they say, the way it's always been. True enough, it's not really so different from 15th century Italy, is it? The internal combustion engine and airfoil changed some of the uses of power, but not the big picture. But since the time of Lorenzo de Medici, we have had a few other additions to the cosmology of human life. The European discovery of America, the American Revolution, the atomic bomb, the list is really quite extensive. And not the least of those accomplishments is the furious rise of American business. As Eric Hoffer says, America is a business civilization. Well, almost. After the fact, it might be argued that Lorenzo had a greater interest in promoting individual creativity than do the chairman of any of the Fortune 500 that currently control our lives. The key error in macroeconomics is its willful ignorance of human beings except as consumers, as mere units. The cost-benefit analysis never takes into account the genius of a Michelangelo. The fact that such regimented thinking fits well with the purpose of government, which is, after all, to gain and maintain power, makes the system work in spite of the human grease necessary to keep its wheels turning. Now, McCaffrey says this neo-Hobbesian view of man has been augmented by the innovative use of addictive algorithms that imprison the user in a comfortable bubble of his own making, a captive of his own likes and dislikes, avoiding the unpleasantness of any other contact with reality. Unable to cope with what's disagreeable when confronted, the primitive emotion of hate quickly replaces thought. This Pandora's package is a bit more than can be detailed here, but it's important to be aware of it when considering the power of the tech companies now governing our lives. 
By the way, everything he wrote there rings absolutely true. Eric Hoffer said in a 1963 interview with public television host James Day, the attribute which is at the root of human uniqueness is freedom. The essence of absolute power is the power to dehumanize, to turn man into a thing, to turn him into a puppet, to turn him into an animal, to turn him into a robot, to turn him into a machine. McCaffrey says, the textbook alternative, microeconomics, ostensibly takes greater care of the creatures it supposes to manipulate by focusing on the individual choices being made and the incentives that produce the best result. But it, too, is flawed by the use of math to determine the worth of product and outcome. Now, math is certainly necessary, but the value of what's being added or subtracted must be determined elsewhere. We're not beans in a bag, although the algorithms say that we are. Moreover, this form of economic game-playing also depends on making prior decisions about what's important in the first place. Who makes those decisions? Given its use and abuse of government, that, act, that actually would, be the, 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 would actually be the province of politics, wouldn't it? McCaffrey says, given the various tragedies besetting us, and depending on your political point of view, the alternatives to these systems are infinite. But he says, for the purposes of brevity, I will skip all those possibilities that require more government. My assumption here is simply that though some government is needed, using government to control an economy is a guarantee of corruption, creating a system that feeds itself rather than serving the human beings it was theoretically intended for. That's what we've got now. We don't need a new boss who's the same as the old boss. He says some of those tragedies cry out for government solutions. Atomic power, for instance, or biological weapons research. Others are not necessarily tragedies at all and are well beyond human control. Climate change is an example. Let the arguments begin. But even those on the opposite side, political sides of these issues can appreciate the dangers inherent in the ready solutions. Whether those be Russian management at Chernobyl or North Korean nuclear missiles or Chinese virus research at Wuhan. And who, we might ask, determines what the ideal climate is. Now, some might argue that big government is necessary for just those reasons and that there must be something to mitigate the tragedies that await us. But doesn't politics immediately make the use of that power the bigger problem? God help those who disagree with the politically correct solutions. McCaffrey says, I will resist any political philosophy that promotes dealing with human beings en masse instead of individually. But if I were foolish enough to give the government the power to make disagreeable politics illegal, that government would then have the power to take my freedom as well, and eventually it would. Those are some very wise words. He says the new paradigm that's needed is one that allows for the maximum of individual freedom without jeopardizing the society as a whole. I don't want to meet the new boss who's the same as the old boss, and not surprisingly, this idea is not really new. It's the very conundrum dealt with by the founders and discussed at length in print and debate over 200 years ago. He says, what's important now is that we have their work to build upon. That Thomas Jefferson knew little about viruses or atomic energy and wouldn't even have supposed that mankind could learn to control the power of the sun on Earth. That's not the problem. The problem is, as we have learned over and over again, that solutions involving enhanced government power only magnify rather than mitigate the tragedy. The additional self-interest of big tech and their abuse of the economy to gain power totally beyond national borders makes a difficult problem seem unsolvable without total revolution. But you know who will lose in such a fight. So if individuals do something stupid, as they inevitably will, the spill is manageable. 
When a government screws up, though, the result is a disaster for all. A government is only an aggregate of individuals given license to play with matches and prone to human error times the number of those in power. But will we be fooled again? He says the answer is yes. People can always be fooled some of the time. That's why we must always limit the power of government so that we might survive our own poor choices. Bottom line is he says we don't need the new boss. We need a change. Self-government is something we have done before and we can do it again. So Vincent McCaffrey says it's time to peacefully assemble as best we can and make good on the fifth clause of the First Amendment, the prohibition on government religion, and the guarantee to citizens the free exercise thereof, the proclamation of freedom of speech and of the press that's followed by a right to peaceably assemble. This placement is no accident. It was fully anticipated to be the heart of American life. And so Vincent McCaffrey says, start the debate. The whole Internet is our Philadelphia. And listen, don't ask for permission. Let's discuss it amongst ourselves. It's time for a new constitution, not to fly the same banners flown in the last war and then get on our knees and pray that we don't get fooled again. Doggone it, he's going to make me go and have to listen to that song, all ten minutes of it. But I'll be smiling the whole time. Because that's really a cool song. I got a link to this article from Vincent McCaffrey in today's show notes. You can check him out for yourself at thebrianhydeshow.com. Stay with us. We'll be right back. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is is The Brian Hyde Show. And we are back. want to mention the Heather Turner team at Patriot Home Mortgage located in St. George, Utah. Although, don't let her location fool you. If you are looking for a mortgage, be it a VA loan or a traditional loan, maybe even a reverse mortgage, Heather can help you if you are located anywhere within the state of Utah or Idaho. You can reach out to her at 703. Sorry, let me give you the... the area code just in case 435-703-4522 if you're in st george her office is at 619 south bluff street and heather's nmls id is 715386 and yes patriot home mortgage is an equal housing opportunity lender i know people bristle anytime that a comparison is made to uh, what uh, what was going on in the run-up to nazi germany and what's happening today in America, and I get it. You know, the Nazis were not good people, and the the things that were done in the name of their party and their goals um, were a huge stain on the history of humankind. It, it was ugly stuff. Some of the ugliest stuff that humanity has seen. And yet, you know, not to this is not to excuse them in any regard. It's weird how we downplay the the tens of millions more who died at the hands of communists like Stalin and uh, Chairman Mao. In China, so curious, but uh, yeah, when you mention something like, well, you know, we got the brown shirts coming, you know, people get mad. Don't you dare compare us to Nazi Germany. How dare you? And I've got this great article here from Rob Thompson. America is not immune from brown shirts, which I know somebody just bristled right now. You can't say that. But here's his point. Corrupt institutions could do nothing if there weren't members of law enforcement, we're talking from local police to FBI agents, willing to act as brute enforcers of state dictates. 
I think back to watching people get arrested for being out of their homes during the lockdowns or not wearing a mask, and I think, yeah, I think he's got a point here. So Rod Thompson says, in this moment of hope emerging from the almost unbelievable set of constitutionally informed Supreme Court rulings on freedom of religion, gun rights, and abortion, it's easy to imagine the tide has turned. America is back. But he says, alas, even rulings as monumental as those in the past week are no antidote to the generations of cultural poison that continues to be mainlined into American society. He says the best we can do is call upon the words of Winston Churchill after England had survived the Nazi air blitz. Now this is not the end, it is not even the beginning of the end, but it is perhaps the end of the beginning. At best. Thompson says because the poisoning is extensive and follows the veins such poisons find most suitable, so we're forced to belabor the obvious for a moment in which too many mostly college-poisoned Americans, have a slippery grasp on reality. He says human nature is the same across races, ethnicities, and nationalities. There was nothing uniquely evil about the German human in 1939 or the French human during Napoleon's reign or the Russian human under Stalin or the Chinese human under Mao or the Mongolian human riding with Genghis Khan. What was different in these situations were the culture-supported systems, or lack of them, put in place that allowed all of the worst of human nature to flourish. America, acknowledging the essential depravity of human nature, had once put in place systems designed to check the worst impulses of our nature. But those, but with those American institutions breaking down under relentless leftist anti-American assaults over more than two generations, we are seeing what was always true. And that is American human nature is like all others. I know, it, it kind of stinks, but he's not wrong. Thompson says, so in the past two years, we've seen something many of us probably thought can't happen here, and that is the rise of the brown shirt within American law enforcement communities. And this is particularly painful to acknowledge for those of us with beloved family members who are in law enforcement and are the opposite of brown shirts. But it nonetheless remains a truism that is denied at our own peril. As a recent example, we saw Trump White House advisor Peter Navarro arrested for not responding to a subpoena from the dubious House January 6th Select Committee. He was scooped up at the D.C. airport soon after arriving from his D.C. home and cuffed by a full team of FBI agents. Now look, Navarro's 72 years old, 145 pounds soaking wet, and lives within three minutes of FBI headquarters. He has cooperated with federal investigators as far as executive privilege allowed him to do But with Donald Trump claiming executive privilege, Navarro was ethically bound to not respond. Now, the point here is FBI agents could have walked to his home and asked him to turn or asked him to turn himself in, which he says he would have done. And his history suggests is the case. Instead, they chose to make this a very public arrest, a strongly unveiled threat to others who refuse to comply with state narratives. Now, coincidentally, by which I mean not coincidentally at all, Navarro had filed a civil lawsuit against the government days earlier for violating his civil rights. Their response was swift and humiliating. At the airport, Navarro, a smart lawyer, said he wanted to call his lawyer. He demanded to know the charges, but the lead agent took his phone and disallowed it. And Navarro was taken into solitary and, he says, strip-searched. Now, that's multiple constitutional violations, which just doesn't seem to matter to most American institutions, including the FBI. 
Navarro told Tucker Carlson on Fox News, they went with this shock and awe terrorist strategy. They let me go to the airport and then take me with five agents, like an Al-Qaeda terrorist, lock me in a car. The next thing I know, I'm in leg irons, handcuffs, strip searched. Now, Thompson says this has been going on for a while, and it's not always simply partisan. Since COVID, it's been more and more clear that most of the response was on behalf of the power of the state and in favor of pharmaceutical firms and a little bit more. He says, during the worthless lockdowns, we witnessed a mother arrested in Idaho for taking her children to the park. A lone individual surfing and another walking on the beach in California, also arrested. Among endless other examples, we saw businesses raided for defying state orders to shut down, seeing that their big chain competitors across the street were allowed to stay open. We saw people dragged out of public places public places, rather, for not wearing ineffectual face masks or showing vaccination papers. Papers! On other fronts, we've seen parents targeted for speaking out against schools, allowing young men to use women's bathrooms and shower facilities. Parents have been investigated and threatened for speaking up at public meetings. And parents who have spoken up have 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 had those opinions included in their children's educational reports. We saw a father at a Virginia school board meeting tackled and arrested for pointing out rightly that the district was hiding a trans rapist who had assaulted his daughter in the girl's bathroom. Now, in these and countless other situations, pundits critical of the actions tend to blame the policy-setting entities, from school boards to the Justice Department, all of which, in fact, are behaving like oppressors. But here's the blunt, painful truth. Those institutions could do nothing if there were no members of law enforcement from local police to FBI agents willing to act as brute enforcers of state dictates. So they may be a minority, but they're more than enough. Some are on board with policy. Some say, I'm just doing my job, just following orders, if we carry our analogy to Germany in the 1930s. He says, some I've talked to, including high-ranking law enforcement, say they would never follow such orders. And in discussions with their colleagues agree there are lines they would not cross. Now, that requires a great deal of fortitude. Some humans have it. Many do not. History bears this out. Now, from here, he talks about our crumbling foundations and says, but until the mid-20th century, America had systems in place that provided checks on human nature running rampant. The balance of powers instituted between branches of the federal government and between the federal government and the states actually drew upon the inevitability of human nature turning toward rapaciousness to create a natural friction that kept the government entities in check. Human nature at each level and in the various branches would work in ways that kept checks on all the others. And ultimately, an informed and moral people were to be relied upon to keep all of them in check. But his point is, none of that is in place like it was. Now, i got to tap the brakes here because I'm coming up on my own break, but... Does that not ring true? And even if you're one of those people who kind of bristles at the idea that, well, you know, we don't have brown shirts in America. How dare you compare us to what happened in Germany as it transformed into the Third Reich? I just want to make clear, we're not necessarily transforming into the Third Reich. Given the technology and given some of the ambitions of the people in power, I think we're actually in the process of transforming into something that will be much, much worse And that scares me. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. I would like to sing the praises of HSLAmmo.com for just a moment. First of all, I appreciate the HSL Ammo being one of my sponsors. Secondly, I appreciate their founder, Spencer Worthington, one of the greatest human beings that I know. And I just want to encourage you that if you or someone you love enjoys the shooting sports or if you're, you know, stocking up on ammo because it's still plentiful, I would ask you, please consider making that purchase from HSLAmmo.com. You can do it from their website. You can also, uh, if you're in southern Utah, uh, which is where a good portion of my listening audience is, you can uh, you can actually go right there to, to, to buy it locally. Spencer's a great guy, provides great, high-quality, new and remanufactured ammunition. And if it's something that, uh, that you're in the market for, I'm just going to ask you, please consider doing business with him. I would consider it a great personal favor. So I'm sharing this article from Rob, or I'm sorry, Rod Thompson, about how America is not immune to brown shirts. And it's, isn't that interesting how he points out how, you know, there was a time when the balance of powers between the various branches of the federal government and between the federal government and the states acted in such a way that they would check and balance one another. Human nature, which always tends towards, well, if a little power is good, a lot of power is even better, was kept in check. Largely through this, not perfectly, but but largely, but none of that is in place like it once was. Some of these changes have been more obvious than others, but they have changed gradually, almost imperceptibly for some people over time. But I mean, the the way to, to really just understand the magnitude of the shift that we've seen is to imagine someone being somehow transported through time from 10, 15, 50 years ago to our day, what would they see that they would consider most incredible, and by incredible I mean outrageous, compared to the world 10, 15, 50 years ago? Rod Thompson says it's painfully clear with the proliferation of things like drag queen story hours and shocking degradations of parents actually taking their young children to drag clubs with dollar bills or allowing their very young children to transition or public schools promoting and hiding such activities from parents. It's becoming systemic and it's stomach turning. It's also the most recent evidence of the collapse of a once religious and moral people. And by the way, he reminds us, John Adams was absolutely prophetic when he said, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. Now, too many of the American people are no longer religious or moral in any grounded traditional way. They're too narcissistically preoccupied with TikTok and their phones, or unable to think in any critical fashion. And as parents tend to accede all education to public schools that increasingly only teach our children what to think. College students are taught to shout down anyone who disagrees, a shocking transmogrification of the purpose of university. The checks and balances are failing, and the power of the state is increasing. Now, this religious and moral failing usually trickles down through our institutions. Congress has ceded large swaths of power to the executive branch because, for generations, the majority of the members of Congress chose the expediency of re-election over everything else. The current executive branch administration brazenly, brazenly ignores court rulings, even by the Supreme Court, and does what it wants. Now, it's not the first. 
He says the First Amendment provided for a highly protected freedom of the press. The founders knew too well the importance of the Fourth Estate in holding the most powerful people, specifically those in government, accountable to the people. Unfortunately, the media that once provided basic information, even if it was with a bias that all sides could access, ceded this unifying territory to become become little more than a communication arm of one party. Rod Thompson says Americans are now operating under two sets of information and facts that increasingly make it impossible to even have a conversation. And this makes it so much easier to demonize those from the other universe of information. He talks about how the First Amendment also provided for freedom of religion and freedom of speech. Both of those were trampled and greatly weakened as pastors were arrested and churches closed down by armed law enforcement during COVID, while the local Home Depot and Walmart remained open. But both were also seeded away by people who are no longer religious or even understand the rudiments of free speech. If Americans were the religious people they once were, he says, this never would have happened. It never could have happened. I think he's right. Considering this crumbling of these basic American institutions, along with the degradation of Americans themselves, it should come as no surprise that law enforcement is being eroded. The more we turn away from foundational truths, the more this will be the case. Don't think we could ever see actual brown shirts on American streets? Then he says, you'll be the most surprised because we're already seeing it. And I think Rod Thompson's point is, is well taken. It's happening, but a lot of people choose not to see it. I don't spend a whole lot of time, you know, just sitting and thinking and, and seething over what happened in the, in the height of the lockdowns. But when someone reminds me, yeah, you know, there was a time when they were shutting down the churches and threatening to arrest people. I, this is the thing that blows me away. Idaho has a, has a lot of people who are very, very freedom-minded. And I was very shocked to see Sarah Walton Brady arrested for taking her kids to the park. By the way, I think she has a hearing a little bit later this month. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping maybe I can get her on the show to talk a little bit about that. I also remember seeing, and this was out of, I think, northern Idaho. I want to say in Moscow, Moscow Idaho, rather. Um, a church, because they weren't allowed to legally meet, you know, they were under the orders, they were told, you know, you have to shut down. By the way, this is under a Republican governor, too, so... It's not just the leftists, you know, out there, you know, spoiling things. The, the Republicans had their hand in it as well. So this pastor in his church or out there in the parking lot, spaced, you know, they're, they're socially separated or distanced from each other. But because they were there singing hymns, police in Moscow started arresting them. It was surreal. And I know, again, the, the comparison, well, that's such a far cry from, you know, rounding people up and putting them on rail cars and sh- shipping them off to extermination camps. The point is, we're following the same progress and the same direction of travel that every totalitarian regime has followed. And, and it doesn't come all at once. I think about Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945. This is one of the most powerful books that I have read probably within the last 15 or 20 years because it shows very clearly how the average Germans may have recognized, okay, well, this is kind of weird or this is going in a dark direction, but they all felt at some level, at least those who didn't embrace it, you know, wholeheartedly and didn't embrace the Nazi party, you know, with with their whole heart, they felt like, well, okay, we're, we're a little off path here, but 
there's going to come a moment, some jolt will happen that will wake everybody up and they'll recognize, hey, this is wrong and we probably shouldn't be going in this direction. And then everybody will say, okay, whoa, hold up there. We're not going any further. But as he points out in his book, Milton Meyer says that jolt never comes. And instead, incrementally on little cat's feet, little by little, another usurpation of power takes place. Another advancement of the state's power occurs. And then you become stuck with this quandary of, well, if you didn't complain when the last thing took place, it wasn't that much. This isn't that much worse than that. Why didn't you complain then? And by the time people figured out, we are in a really dark place that we never thought we would find ourselves. At that point, it was too dangerous. If you were to speak out, you literally put your life on the line because, you know, they had an entire surveillance apparatus that was there to find people who are not true believers and punish them, eliminate them. That's the direction that we are going. And I know people get really upset. Well, this is Godwin's argument. Everybody I don't like is Hitler. Rah, rah, rah. I mean, you can try and deflect or dismiss it however you want. All I know is this. Having read Milton Meyer's book, They Thought They Were Free, The Germans, 1933 to 1945, I have shared that book with other people. And without exception, every single person I've talked to who has read that book, I ask them, what was your reaction to a person? They have said some variation of, oh my gosh, it's almost like he's talking about us. Or we're doing the same exact thing. We're making the same mistakes. I get it. That's an unpleasant thought. I mean, we're talking about one of the most thoroughly reviled regimes in history. And yet here we are following a very, very similar path. So the question, I guess, now is what do you intend to do about it? I mean, because you do have a choice. You can choose to go along with it and embrace it wholeheartedly. You can choose to pretend it doesn't exist or just, you know, try to find some safety in the crowd and pray that nobody notices that you're not on board with what's happening. Or you can choose to courageously stand up and oppose it. I can't tell you what the right course of action is. I know what my conscience tells me I have to do. You can probably guess which route I'm going to take. But it's a decision every one of us gets to make. Choose wisely. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. If you haven't subscribed to my show notes, please consider doing so. You'll find a lot of great reading, a lot of resources for wrong thinkers just like you. And I I think I may have mentioned at the beginning of the program, I was going to cover some heavy-duty stuff today. I warned you. I told you so. I, I tried to give you as much warning as possible. But I'm really headed for the heavy stuff now. So if... If you don't want to to confront some things that may actually just make you stop in your tracks and go, oh, <laughs> I need a, need a minute to breathe, this may be the point where you want to just switch off and, and go find something else to do. But I found two articles in the last couple of days. By the way, thanks to Ruben 
my thumbs up to you, friend. Let me tip my hat to you uh, for sending me uh, Jim Quinn's latest column. I'll talk more about that in just a few moments. Jim Quinn is, of course, the he's the I think he's the founder and administrator of the burningplatform.com. And he has one of the most comprehensive summaries of the big picture of what's happening in our world. And I'm going to share with you not so much his recounting of what's going on. I mean, he really, he's got the details down and just calls it straight. But I'm actually very interested in, in what he does in terms of advice of what to, how he approaches the knowledge that, boy, things are falling apart like a soup sandwich right now. And I think he has some very solid advice as to how we can best approach that. I want to share something with you, though, that, that to me is just immensely disturbing because of the questions that it raises. And this one, I'm going to tip my hat to the Good Citizen Substack. It's an article called Contraception and Infertility Passports. And it, it raises the question about a trend that has been observed in both Germany and in the UK that is a really strange anomaly. The article says, thanks to Moderna and Pfizer, the panic over the recent Supreme Court decision to return the issue of abortion back to the states is without substance. If not constitutionally, then thanks to following the science conceptually, conceptually rather. Constitutionally, the court decision is just the beginning of a new federalism war, a war, a new current thing rather, that will be politically useful as a midterm variant of concern, while also assisting the interests of globalists in destroying the state's rights to commandeer the nation more than they already have. As John Rappaport presciently writes about the legal and political front, quote, everybody and his brother, sniffing the possibility of government money, both state and federal, is going to set up a 501c3 that accepts grants and straight funding to assist women to travel to a state that permits abortions. The press will run gripping human interest stories on the efforts. Somebody will call it the new underground railroad. Women who can't get abortions in their home states are basically slaves, and they have to flee to exercise their natural rights. What about globalists? Think it through. In trying to erase national borders and set up one system of governance for the planet, which route is easier? Capturing the U.S. federal government or also battling against 50 states with their own powers. Someone is going to A, claim slavery would still be the law if the land were not uh, of the land if it were not for the federal government, and B, the right to an abortion is exactly the same situation now. End quote. Okay, that's, that's disturbing, but that is a possibility. Now, the good citizen says the constitutional disagreement is just the legal front in a debate bleeding hypocrisy from coast to clump of cells coast. The nauseating, my body, my choice mantras everywhere have made spectacular resurgence, while curiously absent the two years prior in regard to clot shots, in which case it was your body, their choice, or your body, no choice. Want to keep your job and employer-subsidized family health care? Get poked twice with an experimental shot, only authorized for emergency use, that doesn't work as claimed where the corporation has legal immunity or get bent. Go on then, roll up your sleeve, and don't be sads about it. Well, the sads truth is that the shots are working spectacularly well. And thanks to their real purpose, Moderna, Moderna rather, Pfizer, and uh, the globally interconnected cabal of depopulationists have helped settle the issue of abortion for society. There's no need for my body, my choice, or protests, or insurrection, ladies, and beta-melt white knights. Just go get another booster and you can throw away your rubbers for good. 
Both generous companies, in collaboration with the federal government, have taken it upon themselves to continue the work of Planned Parenthood with mandated and coerced mRNA treats. Operation Children of Men has launched with tremendous success over the past 18 months, and the first returns are now coming in from Germany, the Netherlands, Norway, and the U.K. This is the part that's, I'm serious, it's going to feel like a punch in the stomach. There will be no need for abortion soon, as there will be fewer and fewer fetuses and babies to abort. The vaccines are doing all the heavy cutting now. Six to nine months after the rollout for the under-40 demographic in Germany, a nine-sigma event in birth reductions for quarter one. Now, the statistical probability of this occurring naturally, one in many lifetimes of the universe, or one in a few quadrillion years. And and I'm looking at the chart here. Germany, first quarter births by year, 2011 to 2022. It is very, very consistent over all of those years until this year. And then it is dramatically down. And there's a, here's a tweet from uh, someone calling themselves Jicky Leaks. For a nine sigma drop in birth rates to have happened in January through March of 2022, something dramatic had to have happened to stop pregnancies occurring in March to June 2021. I wonder what that could be. Were couples depressed, looking to move house, too busy? You ought to take a look at the at the charts here. And then the same account says it's not just Germany. This is an 8% drop even before March 2022 figures are released in the uh, UK uh, Health Services uh, Administration vaccine surveillance reports. I guess that, I think that, maybe that's it. HSA. Anyway, you can say, oh, but it's only two months. But when you see the data, there is no doubt. There is a distinct drop in births. And it's not just the UK, not just Germany. Now North Dakota in the U.S. Provisional data showing another drop of 11% for February through April. April, rather. Unprecedented for a state that has a stable birth rate with roughly a standard deviation of 5% of mean. Now, this same person says it definitely has nothing to do with the fact that rather than staying at the site of injection as promised, their own data shows that the LNPs not only distributed to the ovaries and testes, but accumulated. What could possibly go wrong? So the point here is that the women presently threatening sex strikes across the urban hellscapes of America physically have zero negotiating leverage. But self-awareness is clearly not their forte. The solution to the court's ruling is as clear as the day is long because they really thought of everything at the Department of Depopulation Headquarters boardroom. As many birthing people who will want a baby will not be capable, the demand for parents seeking to adopt will skyrocket, thereby decreasing the need for abortions. Oh, and in other news, the SEC has just approved futures markets for pure blood sperm and eggs. Now, Look, I don't, I'm not going to tell you this is absolute fact, you know, why the, the vaccine is causing, you know, uh, infertility. But that is rather remarkable, the drop in birth rate and, and the, 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 t- the time period in which it took place. Maybe it's because I've watched the movie Children of Men. Part of the plot is that uh, for some reason there came a point and the midwives were the first ones to notice the phones just simply stopped ringing. And there came a period where suddenly no women anywhere across the world were having babies. It's a marvelous movie, very gritty, very violent, but also one of the most powerful movies that, that I've ever seen. And I'm, I, well, you're comparing a movie to reality? 
I'm just saying maybe reality is comparing itself to the movie. Sure does raise some interesting questions and disturbing questions at that. All right, let's end on a happy note here. Uh, Jim Quinn, writing for The Burning Platform, just paddling while the empire burns. This is what he says when he says, look, um, there's a lot going on right now. There's no doubt that things are falling down all around us. And he says, putting your head in the sand and allowing normalcy bias or abnormalcy bias to keep you from seeing facts, it's not going to save you. At this point, even the most prolific preppers may not avoid the fate of the unprepared. If we are facing economic and societal collapse combined with global war, that's not a return for a recipe, rather, for a return to normalcy or a long life. So what are our choices? Well, he says, we have no other choice than to keep on living and attempt to survive the biggest crisis in 80 years because that's how fourth turnings roll. Personally, he says, I will continue to work to provide for my family, to write articles, and to run my blog to warn those who are willing to listen and think critically, prepare as best I can on a quarter acre in a suburban neighborhood, and try to enjoy my remaining time on earth, rather, as best I can. He really points uh, points out about the importance of finding places where there are serenity. Now, there's look, nature is available to every one of us. Maybe you have to get outside to see it, but it's there. But he says, letting the peripheral burdens about the world weighing on my mind fade away for an hour or two helps keep me sane. Focusing on family helps him keep his equilibrium. But in the meantime, he will continue to fight for what he believes is good and right and will keep on paddling even as the empire burns. You can check out the article for yourself. I think it's well worth a read. This is The Brian Hyde Show.